John chapter 1. And what we've been at for the last while, as you know, I'm not going to do much of a review here, but we've been looking at what Jesus says about himself in a series entitled, Who Do I Say That I Am? Um, We've ran through about six or seven different things. And last week on the day of Pentecost, we were looking at the fact that Jesus says he is the sender of the Holy Spirit, the giver of the Spirit. And last week's message was largely about why did that happen uh, on Pentecost? Why did it not happen any other day of the year? And we looked at the connections with Pentecost in the Old Testament and the connections with the year of Jubilee as well to understand how we can learn about why the Spirit came by looking at those things. Now, the Holy Spirit does an awful lot of stuff, an awful lot of stuff. Uh, Sometimes we can uh, pigeonhole him a little bit and and narrowly box him in and, and say, well, the Holy Spirit does this and he does this, and we don't actually fully grasp or appreciate the, the breadth of the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I wanted to go on this week, possibly future weeks, I'm not sure, and look a little bit more at what the Spirit does uh, in us after he has been poured out. So I'm going to read John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, uh, as, a, as just somewhere to, to start off from. Verse 29 of, of John chapter 1, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain or abide is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So John, at the start of his gospel, it, when you read in that passage about John, it's John the Baptist. It's not the John that wrote the gospel. Um, it's quite funny. We've been watching a TV series called The Chosen. Uh, I think we've hit episode six last night. Uh, loving it, absolutely loving it. It's about, the, it's about Jesus and the disciples, and it really is fabulously put together. But it's quite funny because in, in The Chosen, Peter refers to John the Baptist as Creepy John because he dresses a bit weird and looks a bit weird and eats some weird stuff. So he's known as Creepy John. But anyway, the John in this passage is John the Baptist, not John the writer of the gospel. But John the writer of the gospel records two things here that John the Baptist says so that we would understand two of the reasons why Jesus came. He says in verse 29, very famous verse, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're good at telling people about that. Thank God for that. We, we, we are so thankful for the Lamb who takes away sin. And we preach that, we declare that, we believe that, we celebrate that in communion. And that is obviously at the absolute heart and center of our faith. But John says something else a little bit further down that we sometimes don't put as much emphasis on. Not only is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
But it says in verse 33 that he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I don't think we have quite made as much of a fuss about that as we should have. We have majored on the first statement about taking away sin, but we have not really majored enough, in my opinion, historically in the church, uh, certainly in, in this nation, on the need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And John says Jesus came to do both. And we really should give uh, a fair bit of attention to, to both rather than just leaning into one of them. Now go to John 19, please, and I'll just show you another little picture to, to see the same point. Uh, I, I love John. Um, I just... I can get lost in this book for a long period of time. I love visualizing things and I'm trying to figure out what, what it would actually look like. But in John 19, just after Jesus has said it is finished and given up his spirit in verse 30, we read this. It was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, I always think that's tremendously ironic and hypocritical. They've just killed God. And they are concerned that they don't want to offend God by having God's body on the cross on the Sabbath. The horrendous inconsistency of that. But because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. One of the ways that if, if crucifixion was a horrific way to die, it frequently took a long time, several days maybe, and if the soldiers wanted to speed up the process of death, they would break the victim's legs so they could no longer push themselves up to take a breath. It really is, is, is a horrendous. But in verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Two things, blood and water. Now, I picture the scene and I make the movie in my mind and I'll wait for a few seasons to see if The Chosen uh, take any hints from me. But I can picture the, the, the camera sort of is at a distance from the cross. Jesus' body is on the cross and he's just cried, it is finished, and he is hanging there lifeless, physically dead. And the Roman soldiers around the foot of the cross start to, you know, gather up their belongings, they break the legs of the other guys, they come over to Jesus, they, they put the spear into his side and they watch for a moment or two and they're convinced, right, everybody's dead, we can go now. And they gather their stuff and they head off. But, but for me, you know, then that scene around the cross, the, the camera sort of focuses in on Jesus, just a slow zooming in and focuses in on that wound on his side and there's blood trickling out of the wound and then just as the camera is lingering on it the, the flow of blood stops or is joined by I don't know a flow of water as well there were two things that came from his side blood and water behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that's what was achieved by his blood 
And he is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Frequently in John's gospel and other places in the scriptures, you will read of the Holy Spirit being symbolized as water. And I think what we're seeing here is the two things that are coming forth from what Jesus did on the cross. Forgiveness of sins, which we know a lot about and preach a lot about. And then the life of the Spirit that that I want to emphasize a little bit more this morning. It's similar to what happened back in the Garden of Eden. Again, if you've been listening for a while, you'll have heard me say this before, but I like to repeat things because my dream is that some of you will go out and plant churches and you can preach this stuff and other stuff. It's not copyrighted. But back in the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam. God puts Adam to sleep. Sleep in the Bible is a picture frequently of death. And as Adam is sleeping, God takes from his side a rib. And with what he has taken from Adam's side, God then makes a bride for Adam. Opens up his side, takes something out and uses that to make a bride and brings the bride to Adam. On the cross, Jesus' side was opened up and from Jesus' side came blood and water. And God was able then to take those things and create a bride for Christ, the church. All right, so the blood cleanses people from sin, the water fills them with the Holy Ghost, and Jesus then has his bride, has his church that he died for. Now, we have a problem, I think, um, for quite a lot of people. And the problem is, I think some people get born again, they genuinely decide to follow Jesus, very sincere and very real. Um, They have an encounter with him, they repent, they receive his forgiveness. And then it's a case of, what do I do now? You know, they're maybe sitting, I don't know, 20 years old, 25, whatever, and and they know they're saved. But there's that sense of, what next? What do I do? Do I I just sort of um, rock up to church every Sunday morning and try to be good and read my Bible every day and say my prayers? And and what, what comes next? after that moment of salvation. And I think a lot of people can sort of spin the wheels there for quite a long time, just not not sure what's actually happening. They've trusted Jesus for forgiveness. They've encountered the, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but they don't know about the power of the Holy Spirit, the water, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's like in the Old Testament, uh, the, the blood of the Lamb got the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery. But until the Holy Spirit comes and until the the water flows, you don't make it into the promised land. God does not save us just to bring us out from slavery and bring us out from Egypt. He has a promised land that he wants us to enter into. And if we only have the blood of the Lamb, and I say that carefully, I don't like putting the word only before that. But if we have the blood of the Lamb that brings us out of slavery without the power of the Spirit to bring us into a land of promise and life, we find ourselves moseying around in the wilderness for an awful long time. Years can go by and we don't progress much in terms of our Christ-likeness. We're not that focused on mission. We're just going through the motions and doing our best. I don't think that's the Christian life. Certainly not in all its fullness. And I think there are a lot of people as well who sort of peep in to the church through the windows, look at Christianity, and I think a lot of them do like what they see. They like Jesus. They, they look at this guy, and, they, and whenever you actually 
present him to them as he is found in the scriptures, they're like, yeah, he's dead on. He's a good spud and he does good things and he, he says powerful things and he's, he brings life to people and, and, and they look and say, yes, Jesus is, I have no problems with Jesus at all. But, but they say, I just, I don't think I can really do the Christian thing. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've heard that where people say, yeah, I, I get it and I can see it, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't live like that. I couldn't be like that. I, I just couldn't, I don't have the ability in myself to live that sort of life. And what they have is that the impression that Christianity is about effort and keeping rules and being good, and they look at their life and their history and think, I, I can't do that. I like the look of it, but it's not for me. I would mess it up. And what I want to do then to, today is look at these two aspects that are both non-negotiable in terms of being a Christian and, and ask the question or, or lead, continue on from last week with the question, why did Jesus send the Holy Spirit? Why did he do it? Um, and, and again, I emphasize that there's a whole broad number of reasons, but I want to really focus in on this one. And in order to do that, we have to go to Galatians. Uh, if you're in John and you turn right and head through uh, Acts and Romans and Corinthians, you will find a short but seriously stingy little letter called Galatians. Um, powerful package here in six chapters and I want you to picture the scene again for this one um, where a, a church a house church maybe meeting in this province of Galatia and Paul has written this letter and he sends it by a runner by a messenger to take it around all the different churches in the region and then it would be read to the people they wouldn't get a copy of it individually each one of them to take to their home and read it themselves it would be read as they gathered in in homes as as the the community and it starts off pretty standard stuff from paul for the start of his letters paul an apostle sent not from men nor by man but by jesus god jesus christ and god the father to the churches in galatia on grace and peace it's all the usual stuff that paul starts a letter with he says who he is who he's writing to, and he offers them grace and peace. What he normally does at that point is he frequently goes on to sort of commend them for something or to say that, that I, I'm praying for you and I'm giving thanks to God for you. And the, the, you know, if you can picture these guys uh, sitting in a house in, in the Galatian province, sort of all excited because they've got a letter from Paul and wondering what nice things is he going to say about them. And he says, gets to verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Ouch! Right? So you, you, people in the house hearing that and all of a sudden it's just like, what? Really? Did Paul write that? Did he write that about us? I am astonished you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and you've turned to a different gospel. Paul is really ticked. It's actually really quite enjoyable. It's not maybe the right word, but reading Paul when he's ticked is, is, quite, a, um, is, is quite a sort of awakening process. He, he 
loads the guns at these guys and he tells them he is simply astonished by the way they are trying to live out the Christian life. He says they have believed in another gospel. And he says in verse 10, again, he's having a right knock at them here. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? You might have noticed in verse 1, he says right at the start, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus. Because people would have accused Paul that he was trying to win the approval of men. That was one of the criticisms that, that, that was given to him, that he was a man pleaser. That he said he wanted to say things that pleased people. And he basically lets loose on the Galatians here and says, what do you think of me now? Do you think I'm trying to win your favor? Do you think I'm trying to get your approval? Or am I trying to get the approval of God? And he says in verse 7 that there are some who are causing confusion. And the word in my Bible says they are trying to pervert the gospel. And that means twist. They're trying to twist it. He says later in in Galatians in chapter 5 verse 7, You were running well. You started well. Who cut in? Who has led you astray? What is going on that that you've gone off track? Now I want to jump to to chapter 3. And look at the first few verses of chapter 3 and see why is Paul so ticked that he's writing such strong words to this church. Chapter 3, I was tempted to get Daniel to, to do his welcome like this. And then to explain why so that you could receive the, the stinginess of it. But I decided against it because um, it's too easy to, to turn off. You foolish Galatians, right? You stupid Galatians. That is literally what he says. Now get that. You're sitting in the house. Everybody's happy and the letter's being read. Boom. You stupid people. Now that's potent language. Who has bewitched you? And all, you know, has somebody cast a spell on you? Have you come under the, the influence of the occult? Has somebody put a hex on you? Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like you to learn just one thing, or I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now, listen carefully to the language. Did you receive the Spirit? Paul refers to the start of the Christian life as being receiving the Spirit. The idea that you can be a Christian without the Holy Spirit is an unbiblical notion. Paul says, when you believed, you received the Spirit and you were born again. That's when new life began. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Did that allow the Spirit to come into you? Or was it an act of faith that you believed what you heard about Christ crucified? You will read in Romans 8, 9 that if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to God. And in Ephesians 1, 13, you will read Paul also writing that whenever we believe, we are sealed or we are stamped or marked with the Spirit. Okay, so the moment of conversion, the moment of deciding to follow Jesus The moment of new birth being born from above is when the Holy Spirit then is received and lives within us. And look what he says in verse 3. And this is sort of the key for today. Are you so foolish? 
after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? This is what's ticking Paul off. He says, you began with the Spirit. When your journey as a Christian started, it started as an act of the Spirit. You were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit stirred you and awakened you and convicted you. And it was a moment of of beginning a new life in the Spirit. Are you so stupid that after beginning that way in the Spirit, that you're now trying to continue the Christian life in your own human strength? Because that's what these guys were doing. A whole lot of rituals and laws and rules were starting to creep back into this community. They had believed in Jesus, but they were still trying to please God by keeping rules and by observing feasts and, and festivals and certain times of year and, and, and do, not, do not touch and do not t- and all sorts of things where they were just being influenced by rules rather than living in the Spirit. And Paul is basically saying to them, you need to continue in the same way that you began. And one of the illustrations I used last week was, I said how stupid it would be to try and do the Christian life without Jesus. That would be totally dumb. But a lot of us try to do the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And I said that's like going and buying a car with no engine in it and saying, I'll just push it. I don't really need the engine. As long as I have the car, it looks well and I can sit in it, I'll get out and push it uh, when I need to. Or I'll do the Keystone Cops thing where there's a wee hole in the floor and I can put my feet down and, and, and run along the road. I try to live by human effort. I begin in the Spirit and yet I try to go on in human effort. I try to just push the car. And I said last week, it'll not be long before you'll get tired pushing that car and you will collapse in a heap. And all of a sudden, your conversion and your encounter of Jesus will very quickly fade because you're not embracing the resource that God has given us to live the Christian life. In Galatians 5, just turn over or swipe over to it. Galatians 5 verse 25, Paul says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And since we live, the reason that we are alive as Christians, the reason that we are spiritually alive is because of the Spirit. We became alive. We had been dead to sin. According to Ephesians, we were dead to sin, but God made us alive. And Paul writes here that the the thing that made us alive in Christ, because of what Jesus did on the cross, what has then made us alive is the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. The Spirit has given us spiritual life. And he says, since you started or since you became made alive, since you live by the Spirit, then keep in step with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Live your whole life in the Spirit. Not just the starting point, but the whole shooting match in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whenever a baby is born, air, oxygen enters his or her lungs for the first time. Right? They come out and, and previously they've received everything they've needed through that wonderful umbilical cord. But after they're born, 
There's a, there's a gasp and there's a cry as air and oxygen go into the lungs for the first time and that little one begins to breathe on their own. They take a deep breath and begin to breathe on their own. That's not the moment life begins. Life began nine months earlier, but this is the moment that they take a breath for the first time. Now that child does not then try to go through the rest of its life holding its breath. It's got to keep breathing. It's got to keep breathing. If you ever tried to hold your breath for a period of time, it gets pretty uncomfortable. It does not take very long for it to start to get uncomfortable. Swimming underwater or whatever, it is not long before you're starting to struggle and you're feeling tired and you're feeling pain already starting to, to come in your muscles because you're not breathing. But what a lot of us, I think, try to do in the Christian life is take a big, deep breath right at the start and then hold it and don't take any more breaths. And very soon you start to struggle and you can't really speak anymore because you don't have any more air in your lungs to come out and you've no strength in yourself to to do anything. Paul says you were made alive by the Spirit. You took a big, deep breath of the Spirit when you were born again. Keep breathing. Keep breathing. Keep in step with the Spirit throughout the entire Christian life because holding your breath is like pushing the car you won't last very long. You ever wonder why some people seem to be genuinely born again, but 10 years later, they look no different. Or they've maybe walked away from from Jesus and from the church altogether. And I wonder, at the start, did anybody sit down with them and say, listen, God has given you a resource for the Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit, and you need to be filled. I've determined that I will not lead someone to Jesus unless I have very clearly explained to them that at, at that same moment when I, when I lead them to Jesus or when I join them in praying for Jesus, for his forgiveness and for faith and for repentance, that at that same moment I will also pray and ask them to pray that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if I just lead them to the cross and say, Jesus has forgiven your sins, repent, believe the gospel, if I just do that, I have not given them the entirety of the gospel. You get into the book of Acts and you will see over and over again, it's the filling of the Holy Spirit that accompanies that and empowers the Christian life. And I would say to you, when you lead people to Jesus, when you're explaining the Christian life to them, don't just get them forgiven and leave them there. Get them filled with the power of God for living the Christian life. Problem that a lot of us have a lot of the time is we know what Jesus would do and we know what we should do, but we don't have the power to do it. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do it. A couple more verses just from, from around Galatians 5 as we, as we start to draw to a close. Galatians 5.16 is one of my favorite verses in Paul. He says, Live by the Spirit, or more, more accurately or more literally, it says, walk in the Spirit. Life described as a walk, continually moving forwards. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So Paul sets forth two ways to live. You can live according to the Spirit, or you can receive God's strength and His power and His transformation And live then a life that pleases him. Or you can live in your own, what is described here as the sinful nature, that's sometimes referred to as the flesh, 
Basically, everything you do, you're doing in your own strength. And any of you that have tried for a long time to do the right thing, the good thing, or the life-giving thing in your own strength, it's pretty wearying. But Paul sets these forth as the two options. Live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, receive the life of God for Christian living, or try to do everything in your own strength. And they are mutually exclusive. You cannot do both, and you cannot bounce back and forth between the two. And he writes this, and then he also explains, here's a little bit of what each of those options look like. If you try to live according to the flesh, the sin nature, you reject the power of God, the Spirit of God to transform your life. Here's some things that Paul says might become apparent. He lists them in verses 19 to 21. The acts of the sinful nature. Now, you're going to start off here thinking, I don't do that, I don't do that. But as we go through the list, just might find something in here that is a bit of a struggle from time to time. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Now, hopefully a fair few of you by this point have said, no, not me. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now you look at the start of that list and you look at the end of that list and you think to yourself, well, that doesn't really apply to me. But there are eight things in the middle that all describe broken human relationships. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Whenever we just live out of our own resources... Those are the sort of things that can frequently mark our lives. And one of the things that shocks me sometimes about this passage is Paul was not writing this or preaching this in the marketplace to a whole bunch of non-Christians. He's writing to the church. And he's saying, church, this is the sort of stuff that will actually go on in your midst if you try to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, you might look at that and say, well, there's lots of things there that I don't see in church. But you know what, folks? I've seen way too much hatred. And I've seen way too much discord, broken relationships where people refuse to sit down and actually talk things through and come to, to compromise or agreement. We're not talking about perfection here where we never disagree with one another. We're not talking about a complete absence of conflict where we, where we never have to just sit down and, and talk something through maybe with the help of other people. But the church sometimes can be marked by division. And people can look at the church and say, I don't want to be part of that because there's division there. And I've heard that from people, people who have been disillusioned with church and they're not disillusioned with Jesus, but they've been around Christians for a while and they've seen a lot of squabbling and they're just like, ah, I don't want to be there. It's horrendous. But Paul says, if we try to live in the flesh, this is the sort of stuff that could end up happening in our, in our midst. He goes, he goes back a little bit, or I'll go back a little bit in, in verse 14. 
of chapter 5. These, these people were very into keeping laws. They were, very, they were starting to allow the, the old way of living to come back in. And Paul says, right, basically, if you're so concerned about keeping laws, let me give you a law. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Take that. Try that. Instead of keeping all these nitpicking little religious rules, try that. Love your neighbor as yourself and see how things change. He says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. No wee nips. A a Jack Russell, sometimes bad Jack Russells, not good ones. They can take a wee nip at the back of somebody's heel. And I think sometimes we do that in church. Just a wee nip, just a wee backbite, a wee... A wee joke with a jag, a wee nasty comment. And Paul says, if you don't stop doing that, you are going to devour each other. You're going to totally devour each other. Paul is just repeating what Jesus said. When Paul says the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor, he's repeating Jesus. Jesus in John 13 says to the disciples, I'm giving you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. And then everyone will know that you're my disciples. So when people walk into a Christian community, let's not be, you know, let's get our priorities right. That, that it's not we need to have the perfect theology or we need to have the slickest church service or, the, or whatever. They need to walk into a community of love because then they will know that they're in a community of God's people, regardless of how slick things are and whether they've got every theological I dotted and T crossed. The alternative to living like that in the flesh, where there is discord and division and backbiting, the alternative in verse 16 is that you walk in the Spirit. And then we also get another list. So we've got a list of of the stuff, unpleasant stuff, that can mark lives that are lived um, in the human flesh and just our own human strength. And then in verse 22 and 23, we've got a list of sort of the stuff that will mark lives that are lived by those who walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Get that. Verse 19 said the acts of the sinful nature. What people do. The works that they do. Verse 22 starts and says the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, not what Christians do, but what the Spirit produces in the lives of God's people as an overflow of His presence. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, that's different from discord. And whenever somebody walks into a room, into a community, into whatever, into a group of Christians, they can very quickly sniff out, is this a place of love or is this a place of discord? Yeah? They'll probably have that sussed out before the service starts. Is this a place of love or of discord? How do these people speak about each other? How do they speak to each other? How do they serve each other and love each other and encourage one another? You see, this fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, this is not rules. This is evidence that God is at work. What is the sign that someone has been filled with the Spirit? I'm going to offend some of you here. I don't care. The sign that someone has been filled with the Holy Spirit, there are lots of things that follow on from the filling of the Holy Spirit. Some people will pray in tongues and some people will prophesy and there'll be there's gifts of the Spirit. There's lots of but you know what? 
And I'm sorry for, you know, the, the people that are offended with this, but if we just say that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence will be that you speak in tongues. I'm sorry, but your emphasis is just so off-center, it's unbelievable. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he will bring forth the fruit of love. And that will be marked in your life, in every relationship that you have. If the Spirit is at work in a church community, it will be a community of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And with all due respect, you can talk in tongues all day long, but if you don't have love, you're just making a racket. And if you're offended by that, go and read the start of 1 Corinthians 13, because Paul said that. I speak in tongues. I pray in tongues every day. I have no problem with it. I love it. I encourage it. And I say you should seek that gift. I think it's a powerful gift in your prayer life. But if, if, if we are going to narrow down the Spirit to something like that, we're missing it. The fruit of the Spirit is love in a community of people. A life overflowing with love. Jesus said, he didn't say, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you can prophesy to one another. He says you love one another. You love one another. And what, what we want you to do over the next few weeks and months is light little fire pits in your back garden in groups of a maximum of six and get around them and love one another. Be together. Find out what everybody's doing. Pray for each other. By this shall the world know that you're my disciples when you love one another. The fruit of the Spirit is also developed in community. You can't love on your own. This is the problem with this isolation lark. You can't love on your own. I, 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 within all of God's people right now, after several months of this, there should be an aching within you and you don't quite know what it is, but I, I'll tell you what it is. It's the Holy Spirit within you <coughs> wanting to show love <laughs> to other people that have been pulled away from you. Get together. Be together. Follow all the rules, but take any opportunity you can to be together and to love one another. Jesus came, according to John 1, he came to take away the sin of the world and to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. According to John 19, when his side was pierced, blood and water came forth, forgiveness and life. And the resource that, that Jesus gives us in order to live the Christian life, the resource that God gives us is himself. <laughs> He is the resource. He says, I'm going to put something into you that will transform you from within so that this fruit of the Christian life and Christian character is born. And the thing that I'm going to put in you is me. <laughs> I'm going to come and abide in you. This is what we talked about a little bit last week and also in previous weeks, that God abides within us. That one of the things that the Holy Spirit is always active in in the Bible is creating, producing, making temples. Places for God to dwell. And he says, I put my spirit in you. I will dwell within you. And it's almost like, not that you would want any other choice, but it's almost like you have no choice. God is in here by his spirit and you will change. You will be transformed and you will bear fruit naturally not by effort, but by welcoming the power that he wants to put within us. We are transformed from within. I'm going to say something else that's going to offend you. Well, provoke you. 
I want to be provocative and I want you to think, does a Christian need the Ten Commandments? Does a Christian need the Ten Commandments? Oh, they're very wise for how to live. They're very important. We don't want to break them. But do we need them? Do I need, let's say I'm filling in a tax return. I've only done it a couple of times and I didn't like it, so I paid someone else with a bigger brain to do it. But let's say I'm filling in a tax return and there's the opportunity to steal because I can fiddle the numbers a little bit and and reduce the amount of tax that I'm paying, which does not belong to me. By right, it belongs to the government. um, And I have an opportunity to steal that back. Right at that moment, what do I need? Do I need a commandment? Do I need a sign on the wall of my study that I can look up to at that moment that says, thou shalt not steal? Or do I need the Spirit of God living within me and transforming me so that I don't want to steal. Do you see the difference? If you want laws written on stone, hanging on walls, you're welcome to it. I would prefer to have God inside me transforming me. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the Ten Commandments are not important. But what I'm saying is, if God is in here, I shouldn't need them. Because he writes his law on my heart and transforms me from within Do you need to have a, you know, a piece of paper or a card with thou shalt not commit adultery written on it so that whenever you need to, you can take it out of your pocket and look at it? Or do you need to have the Spirit of God living in you, changing you, so that you don't want to? I know where I'd rather live. I love the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament and we will not understand Jesus in his context without the Old Testament. But I'm telling you that I'm living in the New Testament age where the Spirit has come, abides within me. And according to Ezekiel, who looked forward to this time in Ezekiel 36, some of my favorite verses, and I'm really, really nearly done. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Listen to what God's going to do in the future that Ezekiel looked forward to, but we can live in if we want to. If, if just more preachers and teachers and, and, and disciples and followers of Jesus would tell people about it, we can live in this. We're not having to look forward to it. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now listen to this. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you get that? I'm not looking at a commandment etched into a piece of stone and trying my best to obey it. That command is now written on my heart by God within me. And it's not a case of me looking at something and saying, I'd love to steal that, but I can't because I'm a Christian. It's a case of me looking at it and saying, I don't want to steal that. I don't want to. It's not a case of thinking, I would love to look at that but I can't because I'm a Christian. It's a case of, I don't want to because I'm being transformed from within 
by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand what the Christian life is about. Paul says any other gospel is a different gospel. I want you to get it. Whether you're young in your faith or whether you've been on the road for a while and you just maybe haven't heard talk like this or whether you're not a follower of Jesus at all but for some reason you're, you're listening. I want you to know that the Christian life is not just a life of having your sins forgiven and then spinning the wheels for the next 40 or 50 years. And it's not a life of having your sins forgiven and then just trying to be good in your own strength and trying to keep the rules. It is a life that is empowered by the Spirit of God where because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the forgiveness that he has given to us and he's made us the children of God and he has put the Spirit of God into our hearts now that we know how to live instinctively because we're filled with the character of God. Would you rather have a church community marked by discord and strife and backbiting or a community of spirit-filled people who just instinctively continue to forgive and love one another because that's the character of God that the Spirit is producing within them? It's the only way to fly. And I just encourage you today, as we think about Jesus as the giver of the Holy Spirit, that no matter where you are in the journey, that you either ask for a fresh filling and a fresh empowering and a fresh degree of just yielding yourself to what he wants to do within you, or maybe you throw yourself open to that for the very first time. And it's no fault of your own, maybe, that you, you have not thought about these things much before, but that you just say, God, I want to live in the fullness of your spirit. I want to receive everything that you have for me. And I want to be empowered not to keep rules, but to bear fruit and to show love so that people will look at my life and say, that's a disciple of Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm going to ask Daniel to come back and just pray for us as we wrap up. Come on, buddy. Thank you.